Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Um, Welcome to Ecclesia. We are today um, in currently in our series called Superman HD. Thank you, bro. Yes, bless. Where we're looking at the, in the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel of John. And we've been looking at the fact that the HD stands for human divine. So the fact that Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. And so the title for today is Human and Divine Words. Human and Divine Words. <clears throat> Now, since the beginning of time, or even before time, uh, as we know it, something has existed that is so key and pivotal to life that without it, there would be no life as we know it. Something that we find in all spheres of life, in our schools, our colleges, our universities, in our homes, our workplaces, in the streets, on the buses, on the television, on the internet, something that can convince a person that they're indestructible but at the same time can also cause somebody to want to take their own life something that has the power to bring peace to a nation and yet at the same time has the power to bring war between nations I'm talking about words 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 can have life changing consequences can't they um Consider these words. You've got the job, whatever that job is. Um, do you like what I'm wearing? <laughs> now, depending on who's saying that, if your wife is saying that, you know that potentially can have life-changing consequences, uh, given the answer you're going to give. Will you marry me? I love you. I hate you. Welcome home. I hereby sentence you to. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. Before humans had been created, when there was nothing but darkness over the face of the deep, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. And those words impacted every living creature. They impacted every one of us here. We are here as a result of those initial words. God himself used words to create the earth and all that lives on it, including us. God alone can create something from nothing using his words. What's even more important than words themselves is the person who's saying them. I could say, let there be light, unless somebody's going to switch the light on it. (laughs) We'd still be sitting in darkness if that was the case. If God says it, that changes everything. We're going to look at the words of Jesus in the Bible. So as I've asked you already, please turn to John chapter 6, uh, verse 60 to 71. I'm just going to pray and then I will read. Heavenly Father, please, would you help me? Lord, would you help me to speak for you? Lord, would you help me to be faithful and to be clear? Lord, I admit and confess before your people, Lord, my utter dependence on you and my need for your enabling even to speak. Lord, I thank you so much that you are here with us. And Lord, not only do you want to help me to speak, Lord, but you want to help us to hear and to know and to understand your word, Lord, and to apply it. Lord, would your words change, have, have, have life-changing consequences in our lives today? I pray, Lord. Lord, there are some who may come here today, Lord, and hear your words and not apply them. Father, I pray that you help us all, Lord, as hard as our hearts may be. Would you soften them? Lord, would you help us to hear and to apply Lord, would you be glorified in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I'll read through <coughs> chapter, uh, John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now we're going to look at a group of people called disciples. Um, and, and actually, in fact, the group is really made up of two groups of people. And I'm calling the, those two groups fake followers and true disciples. Fake followers and true disciples. I want us to see how both of these groups respond to the words of Jesus. As we've already seen, um, if you were here before, uh, Jesus didn't just have 12 disciples, but many people that were following him. And obviously, you know, Jesus was going around doing things that nobody had ever done before, saying things that nobody had ever said. And as a result of that, he, he had a, a large following, a large group of people that were following him. Nobody talked like him. People were astonished at his teaching. They said he teaches as one with authority, not like the other teachers, not like the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He was unique in that sense. Nobody did the miracles that he did. He turned water into wine at a wedding when the wine ran out. And we say these things, don't we? Water into wine. But that is a, a miracle. He took something that was water and he turned it into wine. Not just even just a glass of wine, but big jugs, jars of wine so that everyone could be blessed by that. He walked on water. Not like my man. Was it, was it David Blaine or whatever his, his name was? I heard apparently he walked on water. Dynamo. Jesus genuinely walked on water. For real. It wasn't a, 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 a trick or an illusion. Or He genuinely walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. Lame people, lame, lame people sorry, walked as a result of his healing. John the Baptist himself testified that Jesus came down from heaven. When Jesus was baptized, there was an audible voice of God, God the Father, saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descended on the Son, descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. Jesus has told his followers that the only way to have a relationship with God is through him. In short, he's confirmed by his words and his actions that he is the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God. And this is what John is, John is continually pointing us to this truth, to this fact. Saying this is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah. And it's important for us to keep this in mind as it really does change everything. Because the importance of words, as I said, can drastically affect, can, can, can be drastically affected depending on who is talking, as I mentioned before. So if you're, Mum and dad ask you to do something that's going to have a slightly different angle on it. So if your friend asks you or if a police officer stands in the road and says stop, hopefully you're more likely to stop because of the authority that he carries. Let's look now at how these fake followers respond to Jesus' words. If we look at verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, if you were here last week, then you'll remember that the Jews in the text were struggling with Jesus' words, weren't they? And they actually rejected his words 
And as a result, ultimately they were rejecting God. He was sent, he was sent by God. He's the son of God, sent by God. And in rejecting Jesus' words, they're ultimately rejecting God. Now the focus now shifts from specifically to talking to the Jews who were grumbling and now to his disciples, as it says here in verse 60. And there's a lot of them, as I, as I mentioned. And the hard saying is referring to the fact that Jesus said he came down from heaven. So he's the bread that came down from heaven. And also that all those who follow him need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Which sounds horrific, but we, as we looked at last week, he wasn't talking about cannibalism. Instead, Jesus was talking about the need to trust in his sacrificial death, his body given and his blood shed. To trust in that death to pay the debt of sin. And they were offended at Jesus' words. They were like, you know what, we were cool as long as you were feeding us, as long as you were doing miracles and you were saying stuff that was nice to our ears that we, we could agree with, that, 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 that's fine. But now this is just too rigid. And obviously there were some who thought he was literally talking about cannibalism, but there was also others who would have had a, a deeper understanding and were just flat out refusing to listen to what he was saying and really to get down with what he's saying. His words are too rigid and too inflexible. And hopefully, if you have, as a believer, have shared, tried to share the gospel with somebody or speak to somebody about what the Bible teaches, what Jesus teaches, you've come across this same attitude of people that they feel actually, you know, Jesus is just too, it's too rigid. It's too, it, there's no flex in it. I mean, the, 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 the things that Jesus says is just too narrow-minded, too harsh. These conversations can be difficult, but you expect, don't you? You expect you're going to have resistance, particularly when you're speaking with an unbeliever. But not so when you're speaking to a Christian or someone who claims to follow Christ. What about you? Have you been there? Have you found yourself offended at the teaching of the Bible? Offended at the words that you may have heard a preacher say? Or the words that you read for yourself, maybe where Jesus talks about loving your enemies, the need to love your enemies and to do good to those who persecute you. You're like, you know what? You don't, you obviously don't understand God, what so and so has done to me. And actually, you want me now to forgive them. I, I, I want to take out revenge on them. I want them to, to suffer for what they've done. And let's be real. People have genuine situations that they've been in where people have, have done, suffered serious atrocities. So then when you come across these words now from Jesus that you need to forgive your enemies, that can cause somebody to be offended. Or in Luke 14, 26, where Jesus basically says, if you want to be my disciple, unless you're prepared to hate your family, you can't follow me. And the context there, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship and he's basically saying that unless I am number one in your life, unless I'm in the right place that I, should, that I should be, unless I come first, first and foremost, above everyone else, even your own family members, you can't be my disciple. The love that you have for me should, when compared to the love you have for your family, who, I'm, who I require that you love, when you compare it to that, it should look like hatred. Such should be your devotion to me. Maybe that offends you. Or maybe when you read it about in Matthew 5, Jesus, with Jesus' disciples, um, Jesus is saying that his disciples are blessed when they're persecuted for his name's sake. So when you, when you, when you struggle and when, when people, people are against you, people are opposed to you, that actually you're blessed. And you're actually thinking, you know what, actually I'm looking for an easier life, not a harder one. I, I, think I came to, to, I even began to follow Jesus because I was hoping that not not looking for persecution, but I'm looking for my life to be improved. The truth is that we can find ourselves being offended at Jesus' words, isn't it? Even as believers, even as those who have been walking with the Lord for a minute, we can find ourselves being offended. Sometimes we can be offended because of a tragedy in our lives. Maybe there's a long-term illness that you've been praying about, and for whatever reason you just feel like God is just silent on the issue or he's not. He's kind of indifferent. And you begin to think, actually, Lord, I've, I've given my, my life to you. I've turned to you. And is this now how I'm going to be treated? 
or maybe as a woman, you may have experienced the horrific loss of a child and struggled to see how God could have allowed that to happen. And maybe you've been left angry and feeling offended by God. I remember growing up as a young boy in primary school and regularly hearing in the playground um, when somebody would, you know, it's in primary school, mind, I wasn't, wasn't in, in secondary school, and somebody would say, uh, you know, a nasty word to somebody, whatever that, the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Showing my age now. Some of you younger ones are like, what? <laughs> you can Google it later on. It sounds like a clever response, doesn't it, to someone who's kind of throwing, hurling, you know, abuse or whatever. But the truth is that names do hurt, don't they? Words do hurt. Words have the power to cause real hurt, real harm. And we can see really why so many people are offended by Jesus' words because, as in John 14, 6 says, he was, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus speaks the truth. And then they're saying that the truth hurts you can see why so many people are offended. Verse 61, we see that fake followers are also grumblers and complainers. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? This is his disciples he's now talking to. And showing once again here his divinity, his, the fact that he's, he, he knew, knew within himself that they were grumbling. Not, not the first time you see Jesus knowing the hearts of those who are in front of him, the people that he's ministering to. And he says, do you take offense at this? And notice that they're usually not grumbling to Jesus himself, and so they're not taking the, the, the complaints to him necessarily, but they're grumbling in their hearts and maybe even to others. Is that you this morning? Are you somebody, I was convicted and challenged last week as Pastor E asked that question, that are you somebody who grumbles? And I'm a complainer. Not, not necessarily always complaining about God, but I'm definitely a complainer, a complainer. But are you somebody who finds yourself grumbling or complaining about God? Complaining about what He's asking you to do? Complaining about His word? Complaining about the way things are? It goes on then in verse 62 to say, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It's the Spirit who gives life, verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and life. Jesus highlights the problem with these fake followers. And that is that they're not born again. As we looked at last week, that nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. God is the one who makes the first move. Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that everyone is spiritually dead and unable to be made alive. So people are walking around physically, but they're spiritually dead, in need of life. So you have here these individuals who are not born again, and yet they're following Jesus. So we can see another sign of his divinity here, that, that as I said, that he, he knew that they were grumbling, and... <sighs> We're to be, I suppose, warned and encouraged that God knows what's in our hearts, doesn't he? He sees our complaining. He sees our murmuring, our muttering. He sees really what is going on in the depths of our hearts, even though we may be able to fool others. It's almost like Jesus is saying to his disciples here, you haven't heard anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. If you're offended by this, how are you, gonna now, how are you then going to respond to when you see me ascend back to where I came from? Once again, highlighting the fact that he is not from here. And yet he's, he's human and yet he, he was God. And we know that before the ascension comes the cross. And the cross is a great offense, particularly to a Jew who was looking for the Messiah to come and take over and to, and to rule and to reign. To change things politically. The, 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 and even to us today, to think about what kind of, you think about a, a savior, a, a hero, a, you don't think of somebody ripped to shreds on a cross. There's, there's, that looks like weakness. It doesn't look like strength. It doesn't look like a savior. This is going to be the ultimate shame 
whereas the Messiah that they were expecting would have come and deliver them, as I said, and take over politically. Jesus, by using this title, the Son of Man, was alluding to his human divinity again, once again in Daniel 7. It talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. There can be a real temptation when people are offended, can't they, um, by what you say, to begin to back off or to soften what you're saying. And yet we don't see Jesus doing it. I definitely know that I, I'm, I'd be in that situation if there's, you know, there's a group of people following me and imagine this room began, one by one, you began to say, actually, I fell up with this guy talking, you know, he's been banging on for long enough. I'm going to leave, you know, and it was just Niran who it was, I'd, be, I'd be tempted to kind of want to soften the message. And, and stop saying these things that are causing them. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't begging friend in that sense. Jesus is committed to, to truth-telling. The biggest problem that these fake followers, for these fake followers is that they're, as well as being offended by Jesus' words, or should I say the reason that they're so offended is that they don't believe. That's it. That's the issue, isn't it? Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Now what's both interesting and scary is that there was a large crowd of people following Jesus, uh, looking like they believe in Jesus. And if you were not, uh, an onlooker, somebody onlooking, looking at these group of people, you'd be looking and say, okay, yeah, they're those Jesus followers. They're those people who are following Jesus. And we think about Exodus, same kind of thing. If you saw over a million people leaving Egypt, being following this guy called Moses. You go, oh, they're, they're, they're the children of Israel. They're the people who are following Moses and ultimately following Yahweh, being set free on their way to worship Yahweh. And yet, as we know, on that journey, similar situation, many people began to grumble and complain. So what looked like it was a united group of people who were following after Moses, following after Yahweh. It was actually not that. You ended up with a remnant, didn't you? Huge crowds following God's chosen deliverer. So we live in an age where fake has not only become acceptable, but it's actually become fashionable. The age of faux. Anybody know what faux is? Hmm? F-A-U-X. It's a fancy term for imitation or fake. So you have faux leather sofas. I don't know if it's the last five or ten years this has kind of come about. I don't, I definitely growing up, I don't remember seeing faux. I suppose you would have been ashamed to say something, you know, to advertise something as, yeah, this is not the real deal. This is not, you know, it's something that's not. It's something that looks, you look at a, a, a faux leather sofa. I, I apologize if you have a faux leather sofa. That's, that's. <laughs> I'm not getting on full of sofas. It's, it's absolutely fine to do that. You're, you're, you know, you can still be a Christian and have a full of sofa. You can still, I love you. The Lord loves you. It's all, it's all good. Um, but you know, a full of sofa from a distance to the untrained eye, it looks like the real deal, isn't it? You know, so if there's a sofa in the corner, oh, there's a leather sofa over there. As you begin to get closer now, maybe you begin to, to doubt a little bit. Um, as you're getting closer to it, and particularly as you touch it, maybe you, you're still a little bit doubtful, but, but maybe it could kind of pass. But then the killer test is as you get close enough to smell it. If, if you're sad like me, you do this just to find out. <laughs> then you know leather, genuine leather has a real smell, distinctive smell, doesn't it, about it? I mean, stink. Somebody say stink. Smell. smell, yeah. Amen. It has a distinctive Genuine leather smell that's not there. So faux has become popular because it looks like the real thing. Without all the effort and expense, and particularly in the case of leather, nothing has to die. There's no, it's, it's a, it's the cheap option, isn't it? Um, and it seems like there's, you know, there's, there's faux nails, faux hair, faux this, faux that. Wait, I'm not, whoa, whoa, he's, he's, okay, sorry, no, wait, sorry, so, wait, wait there. All right, let me explain myself. Okay, all right. I'm not, I'm not saying that... I'm just saying... Yeah, anyway, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> moving, moving swiftly. There's lots of things out there that are, that are, that are faux. Um, I don't even have any here, so what can I say? I mean, I wouldn't mind some faux here. That would be quite nice, actually. 
Yeah, for disciples. So as much as it's disappointing to realize that the sofa is plastic, I find it disappointing anyway sometimes. You know, I like leather sofas. But it's not the end of the world, is it? It doesn't really matter. Um, it's not the end of the world. But when it comes to fake followers, fake followers of Jesus particularly is potentially fatal, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a laughing matter that somebody would be, let's say, sitting here today going under the banner, under the name, taking the name of Christ, and yet in their heart, their heart's not surrendered to him, they're not really genuinely a Christian. That's not a laughing matter, knowing that, as we said, words have power, our life's changing, particularly the words that come from God. And so somebody putting their trust in those words will have an effect, but also somebody who is not taking those words seriously. Someone's not really applying those words. Somebody who's just going through the motions. What a tragedy that will be. What's really scary is that fake followers can confuse and deceive the outside world as well as those within the church. And ultimately, they're deceiving themselves, aren't they? But as we see here, that they're not going to deceive Jesus. Jesus knows the condition of our hearts. And that's a terrifying thing. But I also at the same time think it's an encouraging thing to know that actually I don't need to be fake before the Lord. I can be honest and say, Lord, even Lord, Lord, help me. I want to believe. Jesus knew from the moment that he laid eyes on these disciples that they did not believe. They were just along for the blessings and for the free food. 2 Timothy 2.19 says that God knows those who are his. It's crazy to think that after all the miracles that these disciples would have witnessed and heard about, and all the sermons that they heard, imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus or sitting in a crowd where Jesus is, is preaching. I doubt you'd be falling asleep. Many of these followers were part of a big crowd who would have witnessed Jesus speak and do miraculous signs at a distance, maybe. You know, you're part of a big crowd, you're kind of there, and oh yeah, I was there. The, you know, the person who was speaking, well, I didn't necessarily even know that you were there, but you, but you were there. You were part of that. But the shocker is that even amongst those that Jesus chose, these were, so he had lots of people just following him, but then he had the 12, didn't he, that he that he personally chose. Even amongst those, there was one who sold him out. Verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And it's still true today, isn't it, that those closest to you can cause you the most harm. And if any of you know, have experienced the betrayal of a, a loved one, a family member, or somebody who's been a close friend, you know that, that it hurts on the next level. And we can begin to imagine on a very small scale how Jesus would have felt. This is the greatest betrayal. Jesus has personally chosen Judas, as I said, to roll with him. What a privilege to be up close and personal with Jesus for three years. Sleeping down where he, where he slept, eating where he ate. Having personal conversation with him. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what Judas's reasoning for betraying Jesus was. But we do know that the foundation of it, as we've seen here, is unbelief. Unbelief, not believing in who Jesus says he is. Not believing that he is God, not believing that he's the Messiah. Maybe like many others, he was expected, as I said, to, that the Messiah to come and overthrow. And so he had, a, he had a, an expectation of what Jesus would do. And then when he began to hear Jesus talking about dying and going to the cross and it's like, like, you know what, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not down with that. I mean, 
he had an expectation that was different to the reality of you know what he found as he as he got close and personal to Jesus. So although in close proximity to Jesus, Judas had no personal relationship with him. It seems, and evidence of that is in the the fact that it's believed that the when you get the listing of the the the, the names of the disciples in the in the gospel, so it'll go, it'll go through the listing of the names. Peter, James, and John are always first. It's believed that those that listing is there's a significance to the closeness of Jesus in it. To, to, and he, Judas's name always comes is always listed last. Also, we get a, a hint into if you turn in your Bibles to John twelve one to six for me, and we can see we can see what Judas's heart was like, what was going on, what he was like as an individual. <clears throat> Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. The man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume. Mary was one of his followers, made from essence of nard. And I think this, the cost of this would have been like a year's wage at the time. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the same Judas we're looking at here, the disciple who would soon betray him said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Sounds like an honourable thing. Not that he cared for the poor, he goes on to tell us. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. We get an insight into the the heart of this individual. Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. And now one of his disciples is there washing his feet with her hair. Drying, her, drying his feet with, with, with her hair. And you see a, a stark contrast in, worship, in, in so-called worship here between the way this woman treats Jesus and the way Judas does, what Judas is concerned about. And the truth is that there still are followers in the church today, fake followers, aren't they? It's not just that it wasn't just for, for that time, it's still, it's still the case today. There's still Judas is about those who, who will betray Jesus. Those who say that they're followers of Christ, those who say that they, they love Christ, and yet actually they don't, their hearts are far, far, far from him. And it's interesting because the disciples still didn't know, even after this, obviously this is, like, I think like maybe like a year later, Jesus was going to go to the cross after this event here back in, in, in John. And they remember at the last supper, they say to Jesus, when he says, look, one of you is, is going to betray me, they ask who it is. So Judas was undercover this whole time. He was in amongst God's people. He was in amongst genuine disciples. And it wasn't evident to those around him. That's a scary thing for me. It should be a scary thing for, for us as believers. But I don't think our job is then to be hunters of those, you know, we're to go around detecting whether, okay, is this guy a genuine disciple? But we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, don't we? We need to examine our own hearts. And yet, at the same time, being ready to lovingly encourage somebody or challenge somebody if they make a profession of faith, but actually there's no evidence of it in their life. That's the loving thing to do, isn't it? Because potentially, if they they stay on that road where they continue to sin, and the Bible says that that's evidence of, of no genuine self, no genuine regeneration, that they are still unsaved and therefore are going to experience God's wrath, 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 however you want to say it. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do we understand that? That to not to believe in the Son of God, not to believe in the Messiah, not to believe in Jesus is actually an act of evil. 
hard to hear that, isn't it? But that's the truth. God has made it so plain and so clear. How can we not respond? Take care, brothers, as there being any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. So we're to exhort one another every day, as long as it is today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's a, a need for us to, to take care, to, to watch our own lives, and to, to Lord, you know, as I look at my own life, is there evidence of actually a relationship with you? Is my, is my heart soft towards you? Is my, are my ears attentive to your, to your voice and to your words? Now we're going to have moments as genuine believers, we're going to have moments as, as genuine disciples where we wonder, but we don't stay in that place, do we? God, by his grace, draws us back. And that's unmistakable. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, as I said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we work for our salvation. We look elsewhere in the Bible and we realize that actually, you know, it's, we're saved by grace, Ephesians talks about. So it's, it's not that I'm working for my salvation, but I'm working it out. As a result of that salvation, now I'm now to walk humbly before God, before God realizing actually I've been saved by grace. What a wonderful thing that is. Jesus reiterates for the third time in this chapter, in verse 65, and plainly tells that no, nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So in his, verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And for these who are hearing this, it's like, okay, the, the question is going to be actually, well, if I'm not responding with faith, if I'm not believing, what should the humble response to that be? Lord, if, that's, if that isn't me, Lord, I want that to be me, and I will go to God and, and pray and ask God to help, ask God to soften my heart. So we've seen how the fake followers respond to Jesus' words. They're offended by them. They don't believe the, his words, and as a result, they don't believe in him. They eventually turn their back on him because of his words. That's, that's the kind of progression, isn't it? Because you notice, obviously, Judas still stuck around when lots of people had turned, but he, his heart still wasn't changed. He still didn't believe in, in, in Jesus. And yet, at some point, he was going to go on to betray Jesus. Let's now see how true disciples respond to Jesus' words. So verse 66 is a sad, sad scene. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Where many of Jesus' followers turn their backs on him and no longer follow him because of his words, they just can't stomach what he's saying. Just can't get down with what Jesus is offering. Jesus then turns to the 12 who are left and asks, what about you lot? Are you lot going to go as well? And the sense is, when you, when you look at the language, it's not, it's not, this is not a rebuke. He's, he's expecting them to say no. That's the, that's the, the expectation that he has. And then Simon Peter, who, if you know anything about Simon Peter, he either gets it completely right or he completely puts his foot in it. This time he's bang on, um, with the revelation. Simon Peter answered, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What an answer. Here's the evidence of genuine faith. Now we know it's not a perfect faith because as you read on, you go on to see that actually Peter denied Jesus, didn't he, three times. And yet Jesus restored him. He had a, he had a blip, as it were. And I mean, because of persecution, because of fear of persecution. So this is not a perfect faith, but we see a genuine faith here. Because he, and he, he, he comes to the point where he's like, what? Where am I going to go? So the word that Peter uses here for Lord is curios, which means supreme in authority. Master. Genuine disciples acknowledge that Jesus is not just saviour. So he doesn't just come to save, he's come to be Lord. He's come to be supreme in authority in our lives. It's the, think of the opening lines to Al Green's, let's stay together. I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do, 
is all right with me. It's that attitude, isn't it? It's that heart. Is he Lord in your life this morning? Or do you just want him as saviour? Or you just want him as a good teacher? Genuine disciples recognise that Jesus is Lord and needs to be. And yes, at times we struggle with that. We continue to struggle with that, don't we? Because we want to do our own thing, our own way. But if you're saved, then you'll understand that actually, yes, he is Lord and he needs to be Lord. I need him to be Lord because I know what it's like to be Lord of my own life. I've done that. And it was a car crash. And even now, whenever I continue to do it, whenever I try and take the steering wheel again, I crash the car again. He knows what I need. He knows what we need. He has to be Lord. He is God. He is fully deserving of being in complete and utter control of our lives and being submitted to wholeheartedly. And yet I confess I struggle with that. I remember reading the book of Job for the first time, which starts off by saying that you know, you've know got God presenting Job as a blameless and upright man. He's not saying he's, God, you know, Jesus alone was, was perfect. But he was, a, he was a, a man that Jesus, that God was upholding as somebody who followed him, somebody who, somebody who loved him. He was a good father, particularly. Talks about him being, being a good dad. I remember reading this for the first time, thinking, this is amazing, this, this guy is and it's wonderful. And then you go on and read that actually, God allowed his children to be taken from him and everything to be taken from him. This man was stripped bare and was suffering. And when I first read that, I was struggling. I remember putting it down, putting the Bible down and saying, Lord, how? I don't understand how you could allow this to happen to this man. Couldn't understand why God would allow it. But I prayed, prayed for understanding. And as time went on, as I got a bit more understanding about what's going on there in Job and, and understood a bit more about God's character, the Lord helped me to submit to him and to the fact that God knows best. And it, I, I was reminded that actually I'm, I'm finite, aren't I? And actually, I don't understand why you've allowed this to happen, Lord, but is that, am I now going to allow it to stop me from following you? And I think, and I know, and I'm convinced that without God's spirit in me, I would. That would be the case. I wouldn't come to that place where I agree with God, even when I don't fully understand what he's done. Similar thing happened, I think Pastor E mentioned it last week, same, same kind of scenario as I begin to look at the, the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, as we looked at, we mentioned already, that he sovereignly chooses. I can remember specifically struggling with that. Because of then I'm then going on to ask other questions. So if you suddenly save some, that means you suddenly you don't save others. And how can that be? And how can how can you hold people responsible if you haven't chosen them? And these whole issues were going on in my head, and, and it brought me to a place where I was genuinely struggling in my faith. And my my question really was, even though I wasn't verbalizing, it was, "Are you good then?" How can you be good then? This is not the God that I have come to know up until this point. God graciously led me to Romans 9, 14 to 19. I just want to read that. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is what I was thinking. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, speaking of God, and he hardens whomever he wills. Ouch. This is what the Lord Lord was leading me to this to help me, but it, it felt hard initially. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? This is what I was saying. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Who are you, Mark, to question God? And I was in that moment, it was a gracious and loving, I was humbled and reminded. It's as if, it's as if I just became like an ant before God. And I was reminded of who I am and who he is, how big he is. And the fact that he's always right, that he's perfect, that all that he does is just and good. And me and my little finite trying to understand and or trying to determine, and realize what I was doing is actually I, I, was, I, was, I was defining what's good rather than allowing God to define what is good. And God graciously through that helped me to begin to embrace this doctrine, this, this, this truth that God sovereignly chooses to the point where now I, I, I thank him so much for it. Is Jesus your Lord this morning? Is he the supreme authority in your life? Notice that Peter asked a question, to whom shall we go? It's possible that I, I think maybe that he was, he'd considered it. I mean, he'd had the, he'd had the temptation of actually, you know, running through the list of, of potential different teachers or different ways of thought, different worldviews that he might go to. And, and he's coming up like, actually, there, there's nowhere. Where am I going to go? And this is, once again, evidence of a genuine faith. Is I've been at this place. I can put my hand up and say, I've, I've come to this place where I've said this, these very words many a time as I've been tempted to, you know what, Lord, let me just go back to, really, am I going to go back to my life? Or let me consider how now, having been shown the truth, that there is no hope for mankind outside of a relationship with Christ. If I want eternal life, which as John 17, 3 talks about, let me just jump there. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is, to know God and his son who, is, who has been sent. In John 14, 6, Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. There is no eternal life outside of a relationship with Christ, outside uh, submitting to him as Lord and Saviour. He picks up on, I think, the verse, Jesus' words in verse 63. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And as, as I said, he said, you have, you have the words of eternal life. But I want to ask you, who do you go to? It's interesting, he says, whom shall we go to to what person shall we go to who do you go to for hope who do you turn to who and to answer that question it'd be helpful to think about who you're putting your trust in whose words are you banking on trusting in it frustrates when i hear particularly young people i've spoken to before and you begin to talk to them about the the music maybe that they listen to, and particularly the words that they listen to, not necessarily the music, but the words, the lyrics that they listen to. And so many of them are like, look, it's just words, and it? it doesn't mean that it's not, I'm not, I'm not going around shooting people. It doesn't, it doesn't actually have any effect on me. If that was the case, why do they spend billions and billions of pounds on advertising for a millisecond advert that they know will, will affect you? You might not go out and buy it today. Words do have an effect. And, and behind those words is our, our worldviews. The way people view the world. People are preaching at us all the time, aren't they? And so who are we listening to? Who influences you the most? Your friends? Your family? Favorite singer? Rapper? Drake? Or fake, should I say? <laughs> Rapper, actor, celebrity? Do we value Jesus' words enough to listen? And not just to listen, but to obey them. Genuine disciples stop looking elsewhere for hope. It's like a, a man who's just won a, a billion pounds. You're not gonna, if you see 20p on the floor, you're, you're very likely just to walk past it. I would imagine. I mean, some people, are like, yeah, it was still like, a billion and 20. <laughs> but for most people, you're not gonna continue to look for something that you've already found. There's no, there's no need to look elsewhere. And as believers, how many of us can testify to that fact? I have no need to look elsewhere. No matter how difficult things get, 
Because a Christian life is not easy, is it? It's hard. Which is why there's so much foe. Because it's, it's, the foe is easier to, to, it's easy to come to church and to sit down and to listen to teaching. It's easy to turn up to Bible study. It's easy even to maybe go to prayer meeting, although you could question that. Um, it's easy, <laughs> it's easy to go through the motions and, and actually not be submitted to Christ in your heart. I was challenged yesterday as we look at marriage matters about, you know, if, if we had a video of your last month, I mean, I thought the last day, let alone last month. <laughs> At a video of the last, what would that video show me about where your heart is at? What you care about? What's, what's important to you? You know what? The three, I wrote down three things quickly. I wrote down food, work, and sleep. Because they were the first things that come to my, to my head. And, and then I had to look at that and say, wow, that's, that's shocking, Lord. Genuine disciples recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So, You are the Holy One of God. In Isaiah 1, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. So Peter even saying, using this name for Jesus now is once again is, is alluding to the fact, he's saying, I believe that you're, you're the Messiah. I believe in your divinity. I believe that you are God. And he says, we've, I've come, let me read it rather than trying to. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there's, there's a, to me, it seems that, that there's a process there that we have believed. When you first become a, a Christian, do you know everything about the Bible? Do you know everything about Christ? Do you, have, do you have a complete and perfect gospel message? No. 50 years down the line, do you have a complete and gospel message? No, you don't. We are, but you have that initial kernel of belief. Lord, Lord as much as I've seen and I've heard, I believe. I put my faith and my trust in you. God honors that. His spirit now comes and dwells in you and enables you and helps you now to work out and to walk out this Christian life. And you grow in knowledge. And our, your testimony then becomes, actually, I believe more today than I did when I first began. Why? Because God's word has showed itself. God has showed himself to be true and faithful as I've applied it, as I've tried it, as I've tested it out, as I've seen what he says about himself, but also as I, as I look in the world and, and even from my own experience, I say, actually, Lord, your word is true. It rings true. It's not just some nice sayings, but I can see the truth in it as, I'm, as you're helping me to, to, to work it out and to walk it out. So finally, who is, who is Jesus to you? Because the answer to that is going to determine what you do with his words. If he's a good teacher, you maybe like end up like Judas. Because it's interesting, Jesus never, you never hear him call him Lord, he calls him Rabbi, as opposed to the other disciples calling him Lord. And that's the view he had, that's as far as it went, I think. For Judas, he was a, he was a teacher among other teachers. And so therefore, why am I now going to take his words seriously? Who is Jesus to you? And the scary and terrifying thing is that there are going to be people who come here week in, week out, and listen to the Bible preached. And they're going to end up like Judas. There are people here at the moment, even potentially, who are not, who are, they're following Christ, they're naming the name of Christ, but they're, they're, their hearts are not submitted to him. I don't know who you are. You may not even know who you are, but the Lord knows who you are. And I say that not to point the finger, or, but it's a, it's a scary thing, isn't it? Remember my dad saying, used to say to me, you know, somebody's better off, rather than, Attending church and, and going through the motions of, he said, why would you do that if you're, if you're, if you're not really down with something? It's like me. Comes to football. I'll, I'll have a little chat with you about football, have you? I'm a fake follower. <laughs> Trust me, I'm a fake follower. I'm not, and Rob, Rob knows me. I'm not, I'm not a proper fan. I've been to one football match at Old Trafford. And the funny thing is, if you saw me at that football match, you might be convinced that I'm a football fan. Because I was, yeah, I think there was about 70 odd thousand people 
I was on crutches with my two children. And we, we sat right up in the bleachers, right, right at the top. So if you saw me, you'd be like, oh, that guy's committed. He's on it. I mean, he's, he's all about it. But the reality is I'm a fake follower. It's not my thing. I'm not really down with it. And yet there are some of you who are true disciples in here when it comes to football. I mean, and you can, you can sit. But I can, I can mingle amongst you, maybe for a little while, I'll kind of fool you. Hopefully, probably after a while, as you begin to talk about stats and who's actually on the team and what have you, then it will become evident that I'm a fake follower. That's one thing with football, but let that not be the case. The point I was making, my dad was saying that what a waste of... Somebody might as well actually go out into the world and just sin all they can. What's the point in going through the motions of something and pretending and deceiving yourself? And Jesus is calling you, he's calling us to believe. And the evidence that he's laid out is plain and is, is clear. We also acknowledge that it's a work that needs to be done by God's spirit. And we cry out to God for that. Lord, would you change my heart? Lord, would you save me? Lord, would you help me to believe? Where shall we go? Where are you going to go? Jesus is saying, I have the words of eternal life. I have words that if you take these words and build your life on them, apply them, will lead to life, to eternal life, will bring you to the Father through me, will bring you into relationship with me, not just now here on earth, but forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are God. You are the Messiah, God's chosen King. You are the one to whom glory, all glory is and shall be given. Father, I pray that if there are any here today, Lord, who come under that banner of fake follower, Lord, who are going through the motions, who are in the place, Lord, where they don't believe, Father, I, I, I pray for your mercy, Lord. I pray that you would be merciful. Please, Lord, would you help them to repent, Lord? Would you help them to turn to you? Would you help them to receive your offer? of salvation. Would you help them to turn to you? And Lord, for those who are in the, the other bracket, Lord, of genuine disciples, Lord, we are humbled as we consider that none of us, nobody, no person in that bracket who considers themselves to be in that bracket, Lord, is there by their own goodness or their own efforts or their own strength. It's purely a work of your grace. And for that, Lord, we give you all the glory. Please, Lord, have your way in and through us. Lord, would you help us to work out our salvation, Lord, with fear and trembling. Not fearful of being cast out. Because you promised, Lord, that once we're in, we're in. That in Christ, we have been saved, Lord. And are being saved. We're being sanctified. We're being made into the image of Christ and that one day Lord amazingly Lord we will be glorified so Lord I thank you for your word please help us to submit and surrender to it Lord help us to come to a place where we value you enough not just to listen Lord but to apply your words in our life in Jesus name Amen To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.